The Man in the Ready-Made Suit by Governor Morris This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man in the Ready-Made Suit by Governor Morris Charnock was impressed to the point of discomfort by the grandeur that surrounded him, for twenty years the ups in his life had not been very high, while some of the downs had touched the lowest situations in which man's predisposition to exist combats without ever winning definite victories or suffering definite defeats, misfortune, poverty and disease. For a few weeks he had been pretty well up for him, his ready-made clothes were new, his hair was newly cut, he had passed the night in a Turkish bath, and there was money in one of his pockets, and an old watch, newly redeemed, in another. To remember that he had once been the model of fashion, at home in great houses, welcome at stage doors, famous for the daring and imagination and good nature, if not the high moral tone of his exploits, was very difficult more used now to a younger and a tasteless civilization the great spaces and the sombre tapestries of gower house depressed him the servants in livery had a we are better than you look the mirrors reflecting with reluctance perhaps his new blue serge suit an outfit at once above criticism and beneath seemed to say ready-made for once the gowers had no guests and were gathered in a family circle, Nora and Evelyn, Bob and Clarence, and, of course, Gower himself. Dinner had come on soft feet, and so gone. It had been a short meal of exquisite cooking and much champagne. Charnock was sorry that he had not drunk more, for wine is a great leveller, and he intended shortly not only to rise level with his surroundings, level with Gower, and the young cousins, but above them. They talked of his life, his adventures, not theirs. Only Gower, a bull-heavy red-faced man, referred occasionally, with harsh bursts of laughter that ended as suddenly as they began, to old times in New York. At such moments a certain glitter appeared in Charnock's wide-set, light-grey eyes. It was as if the harshness, the loud-mouthed vigour of his cousin, offended him, even angered him. Of Gower's position in society he had assured himself by a careful inquiry. It was as secure as that of the sun in the heavens. His insolence was bounded only by space. He could be as insolent as he pleased. He could be as passionate as he pleased as corroding. He could be drunk and outrageous and look to all eyes for forgiveness and to some for admiration. Even his liver and his kidneys seemed to have nothing but forgiveness for him. He had a gross and sonorous health that defied disease and decay. Charna could not say Gower has grown older, but only he has grown coarser or he has grown more brutal. It incensed the man in the ready-made suit, 
whose gay and debonair proclivities life had so humbled, whose kind and generous impulses poverty and hard luck had so thwarted, to observe into what overbearing hands so much money had fallen. Because his inherited millions were as stones in a Connecticut field, the world did not require of Gower even the good qualities that it requires of a dog. A nation that considers itself intelligent enough to vote even attributed to him a certain mental ability and grasp of affairs and he, like all men who have inherited vast fortunes, attributed these qualities to himself, and he believed, in that callous organ that pumped his hot and thirsty blood, that if he were stripped of all his properties, he would still be a great man, a great power, a leader among men, a delicious terror to women. "'Like to see my guns?' he said abruptly. They had been talking grouse in Scotland, where Gower rented from year to year a show forest. Very much. Charnock rose and followed his great cousin out of the room. The Gower children smiled at each other. Evelyn yawned. He's the first man father was ever polite to. Why? Oh, his father's cousin, said Bob. They were friends in the old days. Father told me something special about him, said Clarence. It seems that Grandpa was down on Father at one time and threatened to leave all his money to his nephew, Bill Charnock, that is. He even told Charnock so. And, of course, when it came out the other way, Charnock was awfully disappointed, and I guess Father feels sorry for him. They say, you know, that he was quite a card, very popular and talented. They always say that, said Nora, about people who passed out a long time ago. When the people come back, you find that they are always dull and ordinary and humble. I don't think Cousin Bill is really humble, said Bob, just shy. Once in a while there's a glint in his eye, and then he looks as if he might be quite a cuss when he's roused. A regular lion, said Nora. A lion in sheep's clothing, said Evelyn. In a ready-made hand-me-down without the vest eighteen dollars, said Clarence. Wasn't he even mentioned in the old man's will? Bob asked. It never so much as breathed his name. In fact, Grandpa died interstate. He did not, said Evelyn. He had a stroke. He didn't make a will, a testament, silly. If he had, and had left everything to Cousin Will, said Evelyn, where'd we have been? Ouch! Charnock drew a deep breath as he followed Gower into the gun room. If he was to rise superior to his surroundings, to the thousands of dollars worth of dark tubes behind the softly sliding glass doors, the time had come. A print, a ferret worrying a rabbit, caught his eye and evoked in it those glints that his young cousin Bob Gower had noticed. For the first time that day, the consciousness of his ready-made clothes and shoes passed from him. It had been very hard to dine in blue serge and tan, so conspicuous beside the broadcloth and pamps, the low necks and French heels of his cousins. It had been hard to apologize and to say, I'm sorry, 
but I don't own any evening clothes. In my world, they aren't worn. He had not added, In my world, the clothes a man dines in are often the clothes he sleeps in. I don't want to look at your guns, if you don't mind. I want to talk to you. If you don't mind, I'll ring for whiskey. Gower burst into his short, harsh laugh. Then push three times, he said. Any bell in this house pushed three times brings whiskey. I tried the front doorbell on a bed once, and sure enough, a man came with a tray. I've seen times, said Charnock, when three hundred cries to heaven wouldn't produce a thimbleful of water. A man came with whiskey and its perquisites, put them upon a low table, and went. Say when. The way to enjoy liquor is to pretend that each drink is to be your last, forever. When, said Charnock. He filled the remainder of his glass with soda and drank feverishly. Then he went and stood looking into the empty fireplace. Presently he leaned forward and held his hands near the opening of the flue. He withdrew it, straightened his back and turned to Gower. That chimney always had a strong draft, he said. What's that? Gower snapped, and an impatient or startled motion of his hand overturned an empty soda bottle. I said that chimney always had a strong draft. All the chimneys in this house are scientifically constructed. I am reminded, said Charnock, of a letter I once had from, from a girl. It seemed better to destroy it. There was a fire going in here. I chucked the letter into the flames and saw it sucked up the chimney. Not even singed. I handed the grounds all night with a lantern. I even handed over the roofs. The red of Gower's heavy face had a black tinge in the shadows. He looked in the toes of his outstretched feet and shielded his eyes with one hand as if he found the lights of the gunroom too many and too bright. I got the letter back, said Charnock, but it cost me a thousand dollars. Or rather, it cost my uncle, your father, that. I had to go to him with the whole story. He was white about it. White. Who blackmailed you? Gower's sudden, harsh, mirthless, overbearing laugh was again in evidence. Her brother, said Charnock simply. He afterward, thanks to very strong backing, became a member of the United States Senate, proved a bulwark to certain special interests, and died in an order of great sanctity. Fell, in short, or was pushed from an upper window in a house of ill fame. Gower's face had grown darker and darker. The letter, he said, was from the woman I married? It was. By God! He started to his feet, but was met and quelled by a pair of eyes suddenly grown hard as steel. There was no harm in the letter, only in the way it was worded. Your wife was good as an angel, and you know it. But she wrote like a fool. Sit down. We are not going to talk about her. Well, what are we going to talk about? said Gower with a certain insolence. About the draft in the chimney, said Charnock. 
Sit down, don't be a fool. Mine is the only loaded gun in the gun room. The only one, perhaps, that has a notch in the stock. Sit down, you overbearing, insolent, pot-bellied swine, and listen. Charnock, it seemed, was rising superior to his surroundings with a vengeance. His cold, unblinking eyes, his blue, shining automatic, dominated the scene. You are drunk, said Gower. Crazy. If I am drunk, said Charnock, it is with righteousness. If I am crazy, it is you who have made me so. You who have so battened and fattened upon the felony that has made the waste places of the earth my home, its outcasts and unfortunates my companions. I am drunk with knowledge, the knowledge that with all your millions you have done no good in the world, and that I, for all the houndings of poverty and unsuccess, have done a little and shall not be turned back now from doing more. You cannot take your eyes off my little pistol. I return it to its pocket in my ready-made suit of clothes. Do not forget that it is there. Pour out a drink, if you like. It's on the house. The ferret's house. See the ferret there, over the mantel? He is worrying the life out of the fat rabbit, just as I am going to worry the life out of you. This room, he continued in a milder tone, you might have called it a reminiscent tone, was uncle's office in the old days. Here he had his papers all in order in the old days, all docketed, all neatly tied with tape. The night he lay dying, the doctors about him, his favorite nephew, though I say it that shouldn't, the servants gathered in the hall, weeping, the night the good old man, the good friend, the more than father, lay dying. This room was broken into by thieves. Gower had grown pale as death. You, said Charnock, the worthless, lying, check-forging son, who had been forbidden the house and the countenance of the father, aided by a thug, a common thief, a second-story man, broke into this room. Prove it cried Gower suddenly. Prove it, damn you, prove it. Your friend, the second-story man, is dead, said Charnock. But it was not for nothing that God brought us two together in the painted desert, not for nothing that I shared my water bottle with him, and that he shared the secret of your great wealth with me. Prove it? I can prove nothing in a court of law. The man is dead. But I am not arguing this case before a justice, perhaps of your making, or a jury of your peers. If so be that you are not peerless in wickedness and arrogance and bestiality, nor am I arguing this case before the highest court of all. I am merely stating it. The lawyers had been in this room, your father's secretary, the man of business. They had left a good fire going. Hearing steps in the hall, you had no time to tear your father's will to pieces. You threw it whole, untorn, into the flames. And to your horror, you saw it carried, unscathed, uninjured, up the chimney. You, too, have searched the grounds about this house and the roofs above it for a scrap of paper. You had the right, 
You were free of the place from which your general rottenness and dishonor had got you driven. There was no will. It was your house. You could enter without a jimmy. You could go by a door. At first you came and went with the fear of hell upon you. Each day you expected that the will would be found and that you would once more be driven forth. But winter came and went and it seemed to you that the document must surely have perished. Your conscience never troubled you, only the fear of being ousted, pride like some stinking grub from the rich fruit of which you were fattening. Always admired your imagination, said Gower. He had been thinking as rapidly as he could, and had come to the conclusion that since nothing could be proved against him, nothing could be known. Why not take this tale of woe to someone who'd enjoy listening to it, he said. I don't. Buttonhole some discontented person and do the ancient mariner. You expected a legacy. You were disappointed. Jealousy inspires your tale. Who would take your word against mine? Ah, said Charnock, you haven't been rich for nothing. Wealth has taught you something. It is not, however, your words that would be believed over mine, but your money. But you, you yourself believe my jealous imaginings, don't you? He had for answer only the rich man's short, ugly laugh. You married, Charnock went on. The girl, goaded by those who should have protected her, went pale to the altar. Her heart was never yours. One day the old gardener, to whom she had been kind, sent for her. He was dying. He had a paper that he thought she owed to see. He had found it in the garden. He had had it for a long time. He ought, he knew, to have done something about it, but he had been afraid. When she had read the paper, your wife hid it. Why? Because she, too, was without honor? No, but because she was going to have a child. For the sake of her child, she hid that paper, and she kept it hidden for the sake of that child and for the sake of others that followed. But last year, when she knew that she was going to die, it seemed to her better that her children should starve than that she should go to her maker with so low a crime upon her soul. So she wrote to me explaining what she had done and enclosing the will that you had thrown into the flames, but that she never knew or she couldn't have kept silent all these years. Of course, she said in her letter, if my husband had ever known of this, you would have had your rights. It is all my crime, all my selfishness. Come to the point, said Gower. What are you driving at? Why, said Charnock, I have the will. You will have to prove that it is not a forgery. It will cost you money to prove that, much money. He laughed his laugh. It will cost nothing. We shall not appear against each other in a court of law. Our court is here, face to face in this room. We shall settle our differences. Your idea is to despoil me of everything? Despoil? That is a hard word to swallow. I shall take nothing from you that is yours, not even your life. In self-defense, I might kill you. 
Attack me if you like and see. Gower's heavy face worked hard as if he were chewing some tough substance. That his cousin really had the will, he had no real doubt. That his cousin could really despoil him, he had some doubts, but they were not altogether satisfactory. A compromise of some sort suggested itself as the best way out of the difficulty, and when he spoke to that end, it was in a milder and more agreeable voice. "'Come, old man,' he said, "'you've had a rough deal. What'll you take for the will?' "'You mean how much money?' Charnock smiled sweetly. "'My conscience,' he said, "'is worth far more to me than any amount of money. "'Your children have not injured me knowingly. "'Blood, yes, that's it. "'After all, you don't want to bring harm and scandal on your own blood.' "'Yours and mine?' Charnock laughed melodiously. "'I am thinking of the children not because they are cousins, but in spite of the fact. "'I will not hurt them simply because her blood is in them. "'Understand that. Our noble blue strain does not count with me. "'No, my property shall go intact to her children.' "'After your death,' sneered Gower. "'No,' said Charnock after yours. If that's all that's troubling you, be assured that according to my will, the property goes to them in equal shares. So all this hullabaloo is rather fool work. Who'd I leave the stuff to if not to them? Your wit works slowly, said Charnock. Your death in the course of nature is too uncertain, too far off, perhaps, to fill my purposes. Do you believe in hell? Do you? I should like to see the question tested tonight in your person. I suppose you think I'd come flying back to tell you. It would be sufficient, said Charnock, if you found out for yourself that there was such a place. And by my soul, I think you will. Gower's fears were rising, for Charnock did not seem to him altogether sane. But you're not going to kill me. Not if you will save me the trouble. It is fitting that you should kill yourself. First, you are not fit to live. And second, you know it. I shall leave my little automatic with you. I shall join the young people, and when I hear a shot, I shall burn the will. How do I know you will? Because you know that I will. The steely eyes glinted with the firm light of unassailable honor. Show it to me. There, then. Is that it or isn't it? As if finally acknowledging defeat, Gower gave one troubled look at the document and allowed his head to fall forward on his breast. Then, treacherous, quick as lightning, he snatched at the wheel and gave a sharp cry as if he had been stung by a wasp. His hand had closed not on destructive paper, but on a tube of cold steel. I was naturally quicker than you, said Charnock, mentally and physically. Circumstances have developed the faculty in me and diminished it in you. Here, take the pistol. He threw it on the tray among the glasses and the bottles. It's cocked. Put the muzzle in your mouth and pull the trigger. 
I shall expect to hear a shot in about five minutes. It occurred to Gower to seize the weapon and turn it upon Charnock, but the fateful, untroubled, almost smiling glint in the pale grey eyes deterred him. Furthermore, it flashed upon him that Charnock was so insane as to believe that, left alone with a pistol, he, Gower, would actually make a suicidal use of it. The idea was so ridiculous that when the door of the gunroom had closed upon the figure of Charnock, the wealthy malefactor was actually able to laugh. He took out his watch and laid it on the table beside the pistol. Five minutes beat, he said, and poured a soft drink of whiskey with a hand that still shook a little. It was a more efficient, a more presentable cousin Bill Charnock who rejoined the young Kagawers in front of the big fire in the living room. His thoughts were no longer upon his ready-made clothes. He was no longer abashed and humble. He began to talk as he entered the room. He told them that they made a pleasant picture about the fire. He told them, leaning on the back of a chair and looking into the flames, that all the most romantic and exciting incidents of his life were connected with the fires. Not conflagrations, you know, but fires under control, fires for cooking or for warmth or for destroying papers. He drifted into a story coming in front of the chair on which he had been leaning and sinking into its leather depths. Once, he said, I was a man of war, but there wasn't enough men of war on our side. Avicado, the capital of the little republic, was so hemmed in by the rebels that it became necessary to transfer the seat of government and the state archives to the summer capital, a town of infinitesimal size but formidable strength in the mountains. As aide-de-camp, I accompanied the president in his, we call it change of base, the enemy called it retreat. After three days in which we had very little to eat and nothing to keep us going but the president's gifts as a joker and a storyteller, we were captured while trying to cross a swollen river. Our captors didn't know who we were, for we were not in uniform, and if we could get rid of certain incriminating papers which had been divided among us, there was a chance of prolonging our lives until our party should be in the ascendant. We were not searched immediately. The president rode off between two men, talking gaily and making them laugh. The rest of us followed, each between two of our captors with drawn swords. In crossing a stream, the president's sword and scabbard, of which he had not been deprived, came loose and fell into the water. Some attempt was made to recover them, but the mud was deep. The little man, he made you think of a quadrumane, made a great fuss over his loss. I could hardly keep from laughing aloud, for I knew that the blade of his sword was but six inches long, and that the space thus left empty in the scabbard was stuffed with incriminating papers. But presently, though he had other papers scattered about his person, he was laughing again and joking and telling stories. That night, about the campfire, captor and captives, we listened for hours to stories that the little president told. Oh, the true romance sat on that man's shoulders. 
stories, tragic and gay, dramatic, wholesomely indecent, pathetic and comic, fell from his lips in a steady stream of bright coloring and miraculously chosen words. He held us fascinated, spellbound in the ring of light. Cigars and cigarettes kept going out, which, perhaps among Spaniards, is greater tribute to an artist than hand-clapping and bravos. In particular, the president's cigar kept going out. I can see him now, talking all the while, looking here and there for something with which to light it. Finally, he begins to feel at random in his pockets, comes out presently with a piece of paper, lights it at the fire, lights his cigar, and sees the remainder of the piece of paper burnt to ashes. One by one, piece by piece, talking all the time, he destroyed all the tangible evidence against him that was in his pockets, and, under cover of his talk, the rest of us followed suit. If our lives hadn't seemed to hang upon the destruction, it would have been comic. Our captors were farm boys, yokels, not stupid, but easily taken in. I remember I had one paper. Here Charnock reached into his pocket and pulled out his uncle's will. As big as this, I had rid myself of everything else. He sat well forward on the edge of his deep chair, and his hands close to the first, began nonchalantly to roll the document between his thumb and forefinger, beginning at one corner into a sort of long lighter. I don't know why, but my nerves began to go to pieces. I couldn't stick the thing into the flames. It seemed to me as if I had to wait until something happened that would draw all eyes in another direction. What was that? Of the five, Charnock alone did not show any concern. He leaned still further forward and thrust the will into the flames, where it was almost instantly consumed. Bob had risen to his feet. It sounded like a pistol shot, he said. What the deuce? Hope, trolled Evelyn. Father knew it was loaded. Better go see if it's anything, somebody. But there was no need. Gower, his face at once evil and sheepish, thrust open a door and came in. He carried Charnock's pistol in one hand. Did you hear a shot? he said. Damn newfangled weapons. I might have hurt myself. What happened, father? Oh, I almost had an accident. His eyes, very watchful for him, were on Charnock. This one rose lazily, his back to the fire, his hands thrust into the pockets of his ready-made coat. I almost had an accident, too, he said, smiling. I was telling these young people a story, and in my excitement... I almost burned a valuable paper. Almost. Gower's voice trembled a little. Yes, said Charnock slowly. The paper I actually burned was a facsimil. A kind of black rage rose in Gower's face. He had put his cousin down for a simpleton. He had thought by firing a shot to accomplish the destruction of the will. He lurched forward making with his pistol hand a gesture that may or may not have been threatening. You, he began, but the cold glint in Charnock's eyes cut him short. I had forgotten to tell you, young people, said Charnock, that when I was captured, they took the revolvers from my holsters. 
but I was never a man to depend upon the obvious, and I had in reserve in my jacket pocket a pair of forty-one caliber derringers, old style. I was so expert with these that I could have shot through the cloth of my pockets and killed my man at, oh, the distance from me to your father. Better carry that automatic back to the gun room, hadn't you, before you have a real accident? He laughed cheerfully while Gower, without a word, turned and went back to the gun room. End of The Man in the Ready-Made Suit by Governor Morris